<laughs> Dads for the win. I love it. That, that's so good. Don't lie, guys. Is that true? Any of those? All of those? Okay. Some of you are like, she's sitting right here. Don't call me out, Kenny. All right, all right. Hey, happy Father's Day. Uh, dads, long distance high fives to you. Well done. Appreciate you in the back. God bless you. Uh, and also mothers, happy Father's Day. You're kind of the unsung heroes here, so, you know, because without you, right? So happy Father's Day. Uh, we, we appreciate you. And, you know, Father's Day can be such a weird time for a lot of reasons. You know, some of those reasons, for example, uh, are, you know, you recognize as a dad, oh, it's, it's uh, I haven't always done great. And so that can affect you. Sometimes you might be saying, uh, Father's Day reminds me that I can't be with my dad. Oh, that might affect you. you Maybe it's because of distance. Maybe it's because of, you know, your dad's past. And those can be difficult times. Those can be really tough times. It can also be, uh, you know, there's some, some uh, relationships that aren't reconciled. And so Father's Day can bring this kind of stuff up. And Father's Day can be a tough time. So we recognize that none of us are perfect. And that some of us had amazing dads. Some of us struggled uh, there's, it's everywhere, right? But one thing that it does do is it points us to Jesus. And it points us to this heavenly Father who is perfect. One of the things we like to do is to project things about our parents onto God. Uh, the problem with that is it's imperfect. Even if you have a really great dad, his best is still infinitely less than God, uh, who God is. And so, uh, today, as we get into the scriptures, one of the things we're going to be able to do is look and see this perfect God and how this perfect God interacts. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 here in just a moment, and as you're turning there, I want to go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you, Almighty God. We ask that you would be glorified and lifted up. We thank you uh, Lord, just for the opportunity to be here, we thank you, Lord, for uh, our, our fathers and that we celebrate our fathers today, but we are especially celebrating our Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, today as we look at your word, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, that in a very real way today, uh, Lord, we would follow you, we would know you, and we would walk with you in a new way. So, Lord, be exalted. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Romans chapter 8. I want to encourage you to open up your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back. You are welcome to go back and grab one. If you have your phone, you're welcome to use your phone if you use it for the Bible. And uh, I'll just have to, in faith, trust you that that's what's happening. So we're in Romans chapter 8, and as you're turning there, I want to share a few things. The, the first thing would be this, that uh, we started this series in chapter 6. So we've been kind of taking it in chunks. We went through chapters 1 through 5 earlier, and then we started 6 through, uh, six through 8. We're finishing this section up today, and as we think of this book 
the book of Romans, we have to realize that it was written to a specific group of people. And so I want you to imagine what is happening in Rome, in the church of Rome in those days. So specifically, the church has kind of graduated. It's gone, to, it's gone on its own. It started in synagogues. Now, that may not really matter to you today, but I want to tell you it matters because Judaism was protected in the Roman Empire. It was a legitimate uh, uh, religion in the Roman Empire, which meant that they didn't get persecuted like, uh, like non-Jews did. So when, they were, when the church was asked to leave the synagogue and they started their own thing, they were no longer under the umbrella of Judaism. And so this synagogue, the synagogues were now saying, this Jesus is not our Messiah, and you are not welcome to worship here with that message. And the church said, okay, well, we, we are going together. We're going to continue on with Jesus is our Messiah. Many of them witnessed Jesus' resurrection. They knew him. They saw him. They were around him or knew people who did know him and saw him after the resurrection. So this church uh, had begun. And as it begun, it is now separated from Judaism. It is also a target of the Roman Empire. And it's a target because it is a novel religion. It's a new religion according to the Roman Empire. They did not see it as a graduation or a continuation of Judaism. They saw it as something independent and distinctly different which meant they put pressure on it. And the way that they put pressure on it is they would say things like, call Caesar Lord or spend time in jail. Call Caesar Lord or you will be physically persecuted. Call Caesar Lord or it could cost you your life. And we know from church history that it did. That there were people who went to the Colosseum, they were attacked by wild animals. Why? Because they wouldn't recant their faith. They said that Jesus is Lord. And that's starting to happen in the church. And the church is young. Uh, it's not just Jews in there, but now there are some Gentiles that are starting to come in, people who didn't have a background in Judaism. And this group is starting to come together, and they're, they're, they're struggling with a lot of issues, issues of the empire persecuting them, Issues of their faith, their former faith persecuting them. Issues of their family pushing them out. And it cost them their lives, as you're going to see. And so Paul, with a kind hand, with a gentle hand, is going to take their attention and focus it on God. And he's going to do that without ignoring the problems. And sometimes we like to do that. Well, we'll just pray as if if I just pray, my problems go away. Well, well, not necessarily. And so Paul is going to recognize the problems, but he's going to draw their attention to God in some unique and specific ways. You'll see it. The series started in Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How can we who have been redeemed continue any longer therein? And so Paul is saying that even though we've been saved by grace, we can't continue to sin. There's not this mentality that the more sin we stack up, the better God is for forgiving our sins, which was kind of a mentality among some in the early church. That's not the way it is. 
So, we're just supposed to not sin? Yeah, that's a great idea. And then in chapter 7, Paul says, well, wait a minute. The things that I want to do, I can't do. Like, this is hard. This is a difficult thing. And then towards the end, he reminds us, and he gives us this this unique illustration, right? He says, uh, basically, I am shackled to this body of death. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death, he says. And then he says, thanks be to God and Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, who is going to rescue us? Jesus. He's going to be our rescuer. And watch and see. And so as chapter 8 begins, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation. You are not condemned. You're not supposed to continue in sin, but we recognize that we live in a world of the flesh. We know that this is a difficult world, and sometimes we are at these crossroads of faith and fear, and we choose fear, and then what? Well, we still can be rescued. We don't go into it lightly. We're not flippant about it, but God can rescue us. And it's almost as if Paul is anticipating the response of the church saying, but you know what? My family has been persecuted. I've lost loved ones because of this faith. I no longer can provide for my family because of this faith. What do I do? And Paul is going to draw their attention to Christ. We're we're going to focus a little bit later on the five questions brought to us from this text. And then based on the answers of those five questions, Uh, we're going to talk through the implications. But as we do that, I want to set it up by reading and walking together through Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. A few things to note there. There's this intimate knowledge that Paul is saying, hey, we have this intimate knowledge. We know that we know that we know this. What is it that they, they know? All things work together for the good. To who? To those who love God. But all things work according to the good of those who love God, according to God's purpose. It's God's purpose. It's not my purpose. Sometimes my purposes are frustrated in day-to-day situations, right? Perhaps you feel that same way. You've had those same experiences. I tried this. It didn't work. I keep being frustrated over these things that just don't seem to be working. And yet, this passage is true that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Unique word, the word purpose there. The word is used several times throughout the New Testament. The first three times it's used is associated with the showbread that is in the temple of God. And in fact, it's referred to as uh, the bread of his presence, using the same word. So purpose and presence, what what does that even mean? How, How is it connected? Well, here's how it's connected. That the showbread that was used in the temple were 12 loaves. These 12 loaves represented each tribe, as a reminder that God provided for each tribe through the wilderness, manna daily, for example. God provided uniquely and specifically for each tribe, and each loaf of bread reminds them of that, and it is only used uh, for an offering to God. That bread is only used for an offering to God. What, what is according to his purpose? That, that we are used only for the offering of God. 
So, so what is that purpose? It's that we are used for the offering of God. We are providing ourselves as God's, uh, recognizing that God has provided for us, and because God has provided for us, we are now offering ourselves to God. And that's kind of the word picture that Paul is giving in this passage as we go into verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I recognize that there is this unique tension in Scripture and even theological debates of how much is my responsibility to respond to God and how much is it God's uh, responsibility and actually foreknowledge and calling on God's part. What, what is, what's the answer here? And I'll just tell you that we're going to get into that and more in a future series where we deal with chapters 9, 10, and 11. But let me say this. There is a reality, and one of the realities is that you, you had no dis- decision in when you were born, that you were born, where you were born, what family you were born to. You didn't get to make any choices about that. That, that was someone else's choice. Similarly, we see it played out here that God has a responsibility in all of this, and he plays that responsibility. Like I said, we're going to flesh that out from a few different vantage points in chapters 9, 10, and 11, but it's important for us to notice, lest we stumble, that Paul is pointing us to God. He wants us to know that, yep, there are these troubles, there are these real situations, but I want your eyes fixed on God, and let me tell you how good God is, and we'll see it played out. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But, but wait a minute. What about the Roman Empire? Well, what about the, the synagogue? What about my family who's rejecting me? Yep. And he says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Then he goes on to say, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also uh, with him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to come in the flesh, if he was willing to die on the cross for our sins, if he was willing to conquer sin and death, raise from the grave, and extend life to anybody who would call on him, if he's willing to do that, and these have seen that, like they, with their own eyes, they saw that happen, or they know people who saw that happen, if that is true, what else will God do? Like, that is extreme. That is miraculous. That's scandalous. If God is willing to do that, what else is he willing to do? And that's the point. Uh, verse 33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because Rome's bringing some charges. It is God who justifies, not Rome. What does the word justify mean? In in biblical terms, just as if I had never sinned. I I have been made right with God. I've been declared right uh, in the courtroom of God. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You think you're alone, church? You're dealing with extreme persecution? We get that. We understand that. We also want you to know that Jesus himself, the very one who died and rose from the grave, he is the one who is interceding on our behalf. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he goes into the realities of their day. 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 The church needs to know that, right? We need to know that, and we need to embrace that. And so let's pause and look over these five questions that are brought alive to us through this passage. Uh, What shall we say to these things? What is our response to these things? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So sometimes we think, oh, man, God must love that person more than me because they get all these cool things and I don't. How gracious is your God? How big is your God? We'll talk about that in a moment. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn and who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let's look at these before we talk about the implications. What then shall we say to these things? We should reject, we should rejoice rather that God, don't reject God. (laughs) If you thought that's what I was going to say, you were wrong. (laughs) Don't reject. We should rejoice that God is for us. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I think sometimes we are so fixated on our problems and issues, that, and they're big. They're bigger than us. Like, there's a reason we fixate on them. They're bigger than us, but they're just bigger than us. They're not bigger than God. Late elementary school, uh, I was playing football, and uh, the guy that I was going, I was a lineman, the guy that I was going against, I, I heard him. I didn't mean to, but I did. And after the game, his older brother showed up, who was out of school, and much, much bigger, and from my perspective, meaner than me. And he told me what he planned on doing, which was pretty scary. What I didn't know is that my dad was behind me. And my dad said, what'd you say, son? And that guy had the look I had just a moment ago. And you want to say that again? No, I'm sorry, I was out of line. You're right, you're out of line. And I'm doing this all of a sudden. I was going like this, and I'm like, yeah, that's right. Take that. Uh, How much more this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And you think that situation is bigger than your God? You you, you think that circumstance is bigger than God? You think that relationship is bigger than God? No, if God is for us, who can be against us? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Of course, God will deliver fully. He has already given his son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When, If you want to look into the courtroom of God, Before receiving Jesus as our Savior, we had no hope. We were guilty. Just one time, we were guilty. And it was fair, and it was right. And people like to say things like, well, I'm mostly good. I 
would encourage you to try that in front of a judge. <laughs> like, like, try that and see how that works. Um, well, I know, I know that in this situation, I ran through that red light, but mostly I stopped, God, or judge, right? Like, mostly I stopped. Is that a, is that a problem? Yeah, that's a problem, because that time you didn't. And that judge, because he's just, is going to rule on that, not on you mostly are good or you're mostly bad. He's, that's, it's not a curve. It's that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He offered his life. And if he is willing to do that, well, like that's so scandalous that this perfect God would come out of heaven and give his life for us. If, if he's willing to do that, what else? What else? Lord, give us eyes to see it. Because we sometimes miss it as we're fixated on our things and on our stuff. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And, and maybe the Roman church was going, Rome? They'll bring a charge. And that'll affect me. And he says this, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, don't be scared of them who just can kill the body. This God restores your soul. When you stand in that courtroom, you stand declared right before God. It is just as if you had never sinned. You are right before God. Who shall bring a charge? Not these. Not Rome. Who is to condemn? No one can condemn the elect of God. Christ died in their place and intercedes for them at the right hand of God the Father even now. What a great thing to know that truth, right? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Man, he is for us. In that place, as we have been redeemed, as we have received Christ, he is for us, interceding on our behalf. There are going to be some implications of that in just a few moments. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, 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 nothing can separate us from the, uh, from the love of God. Nothing. How's it stated? Let's read it one more time because it's so good. Shall tribulation or nakedness or distress, or persecution, or famine, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Man, we just drink that in. Like, let's live in that place. How does that affect us and infect us to the point of changed behavior, changed life? Well, let's look at some implications. Here's the first one. This, this uh, implication, this implies something about God. So my view of God, he's bigger and grander than I ever imagined if it was just me who had sinned, he would have died for that sin. If it was just my sins, he would have died for that. If it was just ours, he would have died for that. Like, that's an amazing thing, that he would give us life, that he would care enough. Like, how many people in uh, lofty positions really care about you? Like, they sit up late at night going, hmm, 
wonder how Kenny's doing tonight. Now, I don't think that's going through the president's head. Like, I, I just don't think that's, that's in his mind. Not unique to him. I don't think there's ever been any president to do that or anybody else. But this God, he is on our mind. We are on his mind. And he cares for us. And he loves us. And he's bigger than the problems in front of us. I'm not saying that those problems aren't real or that those problems, those issues, those things, they're not, they're not, I'm not even saying that they're not bigger than us. They are. What I am saying is that God is bigger than them. My view of God is impacted because of this passage. Also, my view of myself. Sometimes we get in these spirals, right? I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't do these things right. I need, I need more of this, less of that. If I looked this way, if I felt that way, uh, if I just had this kind of medicine, if I just had this kind of car, if my kids did this, if my parents did that, if like all of these things that we wrestle with and the way that we see ourselves is impacted by this passage and this, this passage points us to this reality that my actions can cause, have caused me to be unworthy I'm beloved of God, justified by Christ, and on my way to eternal glory. That's the reality. This, this is the way of the believer, each one who has received Jesus as their Savior. That's the truth. You've been justified just as if you hadn't sinned. Yeah, but, yeah, okay, get the butts out of the way, right? Let's, let's be honest. Let's look at the Scriptures. What does the Scripture say? And let's respond to that. Not just my view of God, not just my view of myself, but also my view of this side of eternity. Sometimes I look at eternity as, or this side of eternity rather, as this place that I have to endure. We just have to get through this. We know on the other side it's going to be better if I just get through it. But there's something different that is implied by God's purpose, just like the showbread uh, in the temple, in uh, in the holy place. The showbread is uniquely a reminder that God has provided for each tribe and that this is uniquely offered to God. So are we. So this world has something to say about that. I exist to glorify God. And he is forming me into the image of Christ. All of life is meant to bring about this transformation And it is God's grace and my honor to join with God in this transformation. So has it occurred to us that life situations God wants to use for his glory? That he's shaping, equipping, transforming us in those places. Is it fair? I I don't know that, that that's ever in the scriptures, it being fair. But is it right Is it good? Well, yeah, if the scriptures are true, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that God uniquely can take these things in our lives and as we offer it to him, he shapes us in those places, which is where we were earlier in this chapter last week when we talked about suffering and glory. Not just that, but my view of hope. (laughs) Uh, like we use this maybe too uh, flippantly. Like, I hope inflation stops. I hope mortgage rates go down. I, I hope that uh, my, my equity continues. Like I, I hope that 
I make good decisions. I hope that I, right? Like, I hope that my family makes good decisions. I hope nothing bad happens. Like, hmm, that's where we're going to put our hope in those things? Then what? Paul draws the church's attention to God. This world can never be my real home. Like, there, there's going to be a time where it ends. Like whether we pass on into glory or this world uh, becomes no more and there is a new heaven and there is a new earth, this is temporal. And there is an eternity waiting. And so don't get too used to this stuff and these things because they're going away. But God is eternal and we're reminded of that. This world can never be my real home. No political, social, economic, or physical solution will conform me to the image of Christ yet God can use all of those things to conform us into his image because it's God at work, not those things. My victory and that of all believers is through Christ alone. God loves me and I love him and I shall be with him in glory. And that's the call to every believer. That was the call to the church in Rome as they wrestled with real things, difficult things. And that's the call to us even today as we wrestle with real things, difficult things. And it's important for us to recognize that nothing will separate us from this love. That it is God's work. And because of God's work, we can have security. The worship team is going to come out. And as they're coming out, we're transitioning our minds and hearts to a time of communion. The Lord's Supper. This is a time where a couple of things happen. We ask ourselves, first of all, am I following Jesus? Like, is Jesus uh, important enough to shape my life and for me to respond to? If so, then we are called into communion, the Lord's Supper. And it's at this place for all followers of Jesus to pause, as we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and just examine our hearts. Is there any unconfessed sin? If there is, then we confess it before the Lord. Lord, forgive me for lying, for cheating, for not trusting you, for thinking of my, my issues are bigger than you, whatever it is. And we repent. Repenting means that we, are, uh, we believe that this is wrong and we're turning, repenting is turning away from that and turning to God specifically. That's repentance. And that happens during these times of communion. We practice it uniquely here in that we ask, we have four stations in this room and we ask after you've spent some time examining your heart and you feel prepared to participate that you stand and go to the aisle, uh, the carpeted area and then come forward to the section that's closest to you and then return to your seat in the outer aisle and then wait for everyone to be served. One of the things that I especially love about this is I, I get this unique perspective of looking out and seeing faces of people that I, I love, I recognize, I pray for, and to see you saying, I acknowledge Jesus as my Lord and Savior again. Jesus says actually in Matthew that for those who acknowledge him before the Father or before others, he will acknowledge them before the Father. And for those who deny him before others, he will deny them before the Father. And so communion is an opportunity to practice that. That's not exactly what Jesus was referring to, but I see it played out each week as we participate. So with that in mind, would you join me as we pray?
Lord, we love you and we thank you. We praise you, O Lord, that you are good and your mercies are everlasting. And we know that we know that we know that nothing separates us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And though it is true that the things we don't want to do, we do. And the things that we do often are the things we don't want to do. We come before you, Lord, and we thank you that you will deliver us. You are delivering us from this body of death and that nothing separates us from you. So in our times of suffering, our times of persecution, our times of pain, we would offer that to you, Lord, asking that we would be used for your purpose, knowing that all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to that purpose. And so we participate today, remembering your sacrifice, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.